Hey everybody, this is Ben dropping you a quick note. Our editors have been working hard to get episodes finished to release on schedule with the reading of the week. Our hope is that listeners will have the chance to engage with the content and share meaningful ideas in their circles of family, friends, and church. In order to meet this goal, this episode has been released with minimal editing. We are looking for additional volunteers to join the team and help with editing, social media management, and content creation. If you are interested, please reach out to us on Facebook or email latterdaypeacestudies at gmail.com. You can also donate to the project, helping us cover the costs of things like website hosting and podcast platform fees. Donations can be made through PayPal by going to our website, latterdaypeacestudies.org, clicking Get Involved, and scrolling down to the donate box. Thanks so much to all who have helped out and donated over the years. We are sincerely grateful. Latter-day Peace Studies is produced by peace-loving members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Any views expressed herein are not to be taken as official positions of the Church or its authorities. Latter-day Peace Studies presents Come Follow Me. I'm Christopher Hurtado. And I'm Ben Peterson. Thank you for joining us as we discuss this week's reading of Come Follow Me as outlined by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Our hope is that as we discuss the scriptures, we will come to a more perfect understanding through experiencing the atonement of Jesus Christ and find greater peace in our lives. Welcome back to Latter-day Peace Studies Presents Come Follow Me. I'm your co-host, Christopher Hurtado. My co-host, Ben Peterson, is not with me today. Today I have with me a very special guest, my good friend, Colonel Pastor Tracy Roberts. Welcome, Tracy. It is such an honor to be on this podcast today, and I'm hoping that we're going to be able to open up the scriptures and all of us will walk away from this podcast having more knowledge and a better understanding of what we have been studying and learning in the Tanakh or the Old Testament. Amen. So today we're covering the Song of Solomon, also known as the Song of Songs, by which is meant the song that is the songiest. Is that, can I put it that way, Tracy? <laughs> sure, that sounds good. The, the most song of all songs, right? That's what's meant by the Song of Songs, the Song of Solomon. Now, first of all, this, to, to cover this uh, book this week, let me say one thing. Joseph Smith wrote that this is not inspired scripture. And then if we look into some of the later um, writings, we will find Bruce McConkie, who's a member of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, and he's going to call it scriptural trash. Biblical trash, right? Biblical trash, yes. Biblical trash. So with that, this concludes this episode on the Song of Solomons. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being with me, Tracy. You're welcome. Now, let's get serious, Tracy. We're not just going to throw out the so-called biblical trash, are we? I, I don't think so. I think that it has meaning. And if I could, if I could just show in the, the Hebrews, they call what we call the Old Testament, they call it the Tanakh, and it's using three Hebrew letters. So the T, the N, and the K-H... And so the Tanakh means the Torah, the Ne'evim, which is the prophets, and the Katuvim, which is the writings. And so that's why it's called the Tanakh. 
and we are currently studying in the writings. That's right, and these writings made it into the biblical canon. Now, we'd like to steel man Joseph Smith and even Bruce R. McConkie's arguments, but, but, but we'll get to that. First, let's say the writings again, they are classified in the, you know, in the Jewish Bible as something other than the Torah, which is the law, and the prophets. So there, another way to call these would be random writings. They could just be called random writings. They just left out the adjective random. But this is like this is stuff that is other than the Torah, which is the law, and other than the prophets, which is, of course, the prophets, right? The prophecy that the prophets bring. And so we have things like Ruth. We have things like Psalms and Proverbs that we've already covered. All of these and Job, all of these fall into the writings, and they're written in verse, or in the case of Ecclesiastes, in poetic prose. In this case, we're looking at verse. We're looking at some of the most beautiful love poetry that has come down to us from the ancient world. But let's steal man Joseph Smith's and Bruce R. McConkie's statements. What would you say to, the, to steel manning those statements, Tracy? Well, when I'm looking at it, what I would find is is the reason why Joseph Smith may have decided that this was uninspired was because it's really there are some books in the writings that are not going to go into the Torah. They're not going to teach us about covenant. They're not going to mention the God of Israel. And so with those three things missing, then an individual could easily decide that this was was not an inspired work or something that I needed to spend a lot of time in. And with Bruce McConkie, if my belief system is such that you cannot have a mixing of races or other things, then if I'm looking at this and this is a black lady, it appears, and she's in love with the king and the king's in love with her, then we've got the maybe the first interracial writing in the scriptures and so if i don't believe in that then i may not i may have to just dismiss this piece of literature because it's not suiting or it's not fitting into my understanding uh and that makes perfect sense to me that's an interesting point an interesting reading tracy thanks for that so what would we then how would we then respond and make our own case for including this you know first of all I would say with Ben, whose idea it was that we should record something on the Song of Songs that says, this is not inspired scripture, it's biblical trash, the end, which is the, the joke that we made at the beginning, hat tip to Ben. Uh, we're holding him present today. But if I want to make a case for why we should read this book, well then Ben has as good a case as any I've heard, which is anything that has been around this long deserves to be read. And the reason I love that answer or that attitude, that's the spirit of that answer, right? Is that that means I should be reading the Gilgamesh and other ancient Near Eastern myths. I should be reading the Vedas, the Upanishads, the Mahabharata, the Bhagavad Gita, the Quran, the uh, Confucius's Analects, the Tao Te Ching, the Dhammapada, uh, the teachings of the Buddha, right? Am I missing anything? I, I think that you're on top of it. And we can find that if we were studying in the Doctrine and Covenants, I believe 
that we've got three different times where God specifically is going to tell the, his saints, his people, that what they need to do is they need to be seeking knowledge and wisdom. They need to be learning from the best books. And that's the way that God said it. So if God is telling me to read from the best books, then maybe, just maybe, that might be a good idea. Yeah, you know, it occurs to me that part of this conversation is I've already mentioned extra canonical texts that are that are from without our tradition. There are other texts that are within our tradition that are still extra canonical and still are deserving of our attention. I haven't mentioned any of those. So let's remember, let's recall that the books of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes were on the chopping block not to be included in the Hebrew Bible. If they're in our Bible, it's because they were included in the Hebrew Bible. And yet, can I really say that, Tracy? Because the Apocrypha were part of the Protestant Bible, which is our Bible is the Protestant Bible, right? The Catholic Bible is different from our Bible. The Orthodox Bible is different from our Bible. And the Jewish Bible is different from our Bible. Our Bible is the Protestant Bible. But if I'm going to make the case that because the Proverbs and Ecclesiastes made it into the Hebrew Bible, that's why they're still in the Protestant Bible today, how is that a problem? So for me, what I'm seeing is I'm seeing that there are many things that, that are, are now missing from our canon because, for example, Martin Luther, when he's doing the Geneva Bible, he takes a bunch of these books, some 14 books, and he places them in between the Old Testament and the New Testament, and he kind of others them. And then in the late 1800s, the British Bible Society and the American Bible Society say, hey, we could print our Bibles a lot cheaper if we didn't have those 14 books in there. And Martin Luther already kind of othered them. And so in the early 18, I think it was in the 1820s, then we have a big argument that's happening about do we need to have the Apocrypha and other books in our canon? And Joseph Smith kind of answers that question in the Doctrine and the Covenants when he asks and God tells him that that he can you can use it, you don't necessarily have to have it, but if you read the read it with the Spirit, then it will be of value to you. Yeah, and it's interesting to note that although we as Latter-day Saints don't tend to read, at least I was going to say liturgically, I don't know that we do much of reading from the scriptures liturgically in general. Here's a, a possibility for if you're speaking in sacrament, read some scriptures over the pulpit. I'd love to hear it. But in the ways that we do use scripture, in the ways that we do use sacred texts in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, we don't tend to use the Apocrypha. And yet, and yet, what do we find in Latter-day Saintism, Tracy, related to the Apocrypha? Well, what apparently there are 179 unique doctrines to the Restoration that are found specifically and only in the Apocrypha. And what I found in some of my studies is that the Apocrypha is quoted in the New Testament some 332 times. So it may be something that I want to read and study because I think that it not only it fills in my knowledge, but it brings some extra things to the table. And so I'm 
delving into and finding that the Apocrypha is something that that is useful for us to read. And apparently it was part of the restoration of all things. Yeah, it's a really good point. So we have these unique doctrines that relate to the restoration that are actually found in the Apocryphal writings. So for Latter-day Saints who are curious to read the Apocryphal writings, what are we looking at? We can start, right, with, by just comparing our Bible with the Orthodox Bible, the Catholic Bible. You know, ours, again, is the Protestant Bible. And even the Hebrew Bible we've already compared. So you have these books that we call the Apocrypha that you can buy a study Bible. Say you buy the NRSV study Bible, as Ben and I have recommended. You can They're going to come with the Apocrypha. You can even find in book form the KJV translation of the Apocrypha. And those books are books like Tobit, Judith, uh, First and Second Maccabees. Am I missing anything? Sirach, right? The Ecclesiasticos or Ben Sirach. Yes. Um, those are some a, of the re- Baruch, right? Yes, and I don't have the list right in front of me. But those books, they bring some things to the table that I love. Um, because now I'm not missing a 400-year period in between the three to 400-year period in between the New Testament and the Old Testament. Now, these are the ones that are the, the ones that I've mentioned, and that may not have been an exhaustive list. I'm just naming some books that that occur to me that are apocryphal that are found in the you know in the Protestant Bible up until around the time of Joseph Smith, who, as you've pointed out, Tracy, asked God. Uh, should he translate them and is told no need to translate them there's good stuff in there Uh, i'm paraphrasing there's good stuff in there if you read it by the spirit apparently that worked for joseph smith he got a lot of good stuff out of the apocrypha reading by the spirit and we get the restoration and that's very much a part of it right but there are other writings that aren't that weren't included in the bible at all because they were rejected by those canonizing even the protestant bible and so those are works like the nag hammadi library which is, these are Gnostic Gospels. And there are two senses of Gnostic. You know, there's the idea that you have to have some kind of secret knowledge uh, to, be, uh, to be saved. And that's the Gnosticism that, that I would also reject, along with those who reject the Gnostic Gospels on that basis. But then there's Gnosticism in the sense of, I'm going to put it in my own terms. I'm, when I first began to you know, co-host the Latter-day Contemplation podcast, I wanted to record an episode on the esoteric and the exoteric because there's the outer shell, the exoteric, which is a lot of this covenant. And it's a lot of what we get in the Old Testament where we're not in the writings, right? When we're in the law, the Torah, when we're in the in the prophets. But then there's the the esoteric, right? There's something inside that shell which is the kernel and without the kernel the shell is an empty shell and so this is a really important concept to understand the inner and the outer the exoteric and the esoteric the outer shell and the inner kernel and as we as we go into some of these uh, writings that we're talking about today from the song of solomon's which by the way i say writings this book is made up likely it's an anthology it's made up of different poems that are brought together we don't know exactly what they are or what they were for. They could have been used in wedding settings. They could have been, some scholars have argued that they come from 
Egyptian poetry, earlier is uh, earlier, you know, Hebrew poetry. They do follow the the Hebrew, the biblical poetry that we've been talking about on the podcast. You know, they are written in in verses that are have semantic parallelism. Again, no rhyme, no meter, but there is a rhythm to them, and there is semantic parallelism in versets. You know, each verse is divided into two versets. And the meaning from the first to the second verse gets either more intense or more focused or more specific in some way. And sometimes that's loosely followed. Again, all rules are made to be broken. A good poet is going to break the rules creatively. Anything else to say about the provenance of the the Song of Solomon for you, Tracy? I know you'd like to bring Solomon in. Yes, because I love Solomon. But one of the things, because you're talking about extra canonical books of scripture or books that are not included in our current canon, uh, I'm just reminded of the book of Enoch, the book of Jasher, which fills in a lot of the space that's left out, uh, the book of Jubilees, which is called Little Genesis. And so there are some books out there that we can read and study and they may give us a better understanding of of what we're reading and so that's why I don't just limit myself to to just what's in my Protestant King James version of the Bible and if I were being really honest then I would have to say I should be using the King James 1611 version of the Bible, which would then give me the Apocrypha and other writings that are not currently in my scripture. And that would include, by the way, the book of Jubilees. Now that you mention it, that's one of the books that is in the in the, the Apocrypha that was included in the Bible. So it's interesting yes. that that occurs around the time of Joseph Smith. Now, if we want to go into the what Joseph Smith said, and, and more what Joseph Smith said than what Bruce R. McConkie said, because he was just adding to what Joseph Smith said. There's an article you and I read, Tracy, from Dana Pike, who was a professor of ancient scripture when he wrote it at BYU. And he asked his students what they know about the Song of Solomon. And I think most Latter-day Saints uh, that know anything about the Song of Solomon, what they know is the same thing his students which would say, which is, it's not inspired scripture, right? What Joseph Smith said. And how do we know this? Well, Joseph Smith said so. So the questions, I want to go through some of the questions that this professor brings up. I think it's a good idea to answer these questions. And I don't necessarily agree with his answers, but let's ask the questions and answer them, Tracy. Question number one, what is the basis for the Latter-day Saint claim that the Song of Solomon is not inspired scripture? Where does he say this? Basically, he's saying, well, Joseph Smith told us that that is the case. And Joseph being the prophet of the restoration, then we may want to hold what he tells us in high regard. And we should really pay attention to it. And if you've got a prophet on deck that is giving you prophetic utterance, then you may really want to pay attention to what they say. And so I think that throughout the history of the Restoration, that is one of the reasons why Joseph and what he said is held in high regard. And then after Joseph, then you've got this whole big journal of discourses that that are going into the early apostles and prophets um, that many people hold in 
in high regard also. Yeah, so that they should, you know, of course, uh, Latter-day Saints should uh, listen to the voice of the prophet, obviously. But where does he say this? He, it turns out he says this, he just writes it in the margin of his translation of the Bible, the Joseph Smith-inspired translation, we call it. It's just a, a note, and it actually agrees with um, Adam Clark's commentary on the Bible, which happens to be where a lot of what Joseph Smith calls his translation of the Bible seems to come from. At least it coincides with the things that he's saying that are different, you know, where he makes alterations to the, the King James Bible. They seem to coincide with those things that Adam Clark, with an E, C-L-A-R-K-E, wrote in his commentary on the Bible. So Ben and I have talked about this extensively, Tracy. When Joseph Smith speaks of translation, I was about to say he doesn't claim to know ancient languages. It's interesting because he does make those claims. Uh, we have, I've, I pointed that out. There are letters or diaries where he makes those claims. And yet he doesn't really know the ancient languages. He is translating not languages, but not not linguistically, but culturally. So there's cultural adaptation can be considered a form of translation. That's as he understood it in his time. And so he's doing that and he says, he writes a note in the margin and says, this is not inspired scripture. Now we've already covered the reasons why he might say that. Fair enough. What then would be the next question? Okay, before you go to that, then this is an important thing that we can look at and, and see that and I, I learned this from Dr. Nehemiah Gordon, who's a, a, a scholar in ancient scripture. And he said that oftentimes we'll find a scribe writing something in the margin in one set of scripture. And then, and then in the next translation, or, or not a translation, in the next copying or the copying after that, then what was written in the margin then becomes put in, is put into the text and now everybody's accepting it as just being the fact and that has happened that has occurred within our understanding where Joseph was putting something in the margin just so hey pay attention to this then we've now moved it from the margin and, and kind of put it into the the text and said hey, this is not inspired um, writing. Yeah, I could. that's an interesting point. I could read that in, in this way, Tracy. I could say, whereas perhaps Joseph Smith just meant to point out that, hey, there's no Torah, there's no covenant, there's no mention of God, and, and that's what I mean by this is an inspired scripture. But we took it to mean, therefore, don't read it. And there's no therefore, don't read it. That's something that we've added, right? We... Joseph Smith didn't say that. Maybe, perhaps we could argue that that if it's biblical trash, as Bruce R. McConkie has it, then maybe we shouldn't read it, right? I think that was the impression he tried to give. And it could be because of uh, racism, as you pointed out. It could be because of the erotic nature of the poetry. You know, uh, it, it is the case that Jewish boys are not allowed to read this until they reach a certain age. It is very much erotic, but it has to do with a marriage, right? And so there's a time and a place for everything under the sun, as Ecclesiastes tells us. And there is a time and a place for eroticism in its proper bounds. And that is a sacrament in in Christian in the Christian tradition, including in our tradition. Now, as Latter-day Saints, we think of the sacrament as the what's usually thought of as the Eucharist, right? 
which is the 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 Last Supper uh, ritualized, right? And we do that Sundays at church. But we also believe in temple marriage, in celestial marriage, in eternal marriage. And this marriage is also a sacrament. This is a, a covenant, as we put it in Latter-day Saint terms. So there's no mention of covenant in the book, but it's about marriage, and marriage is a covenant. So there's that. The next question, Tracy, that the professor raises is, if it's not inspired scripture, why is it in the Bible? And that's an interesting one to go into. Do you have anything to say about that? Uh, we we could do a whole podcast on that alone, and we would have to go back to to the 300 A.D. and and we would look at the different conferences and conventions, the 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 Council of Nicaea, the Council of Trent. Uh, there are many of these councils that are going to call all of the bishops in and they're going to decide what is scripture and what is not scripture. And I'm just going to say as a side note, when those bishops are being called in, not one Jewish bishop that are legitimate bishops are going to be invited to these conferences. So that may have changed the what gets put in and what doesn't get put in, but it was done by consent. And oftentimes when they were doing it, they would look at it and they would say, well, this one's really popular. All the churches have this particular scroll, so we're going to keep it in. This scroll hasn't been used for a hundred years or 50 years, so we're going to take it out. And so, so what we're seeing is we look at our Bible and think it's always been that way. And the reality is it has not always been that way. And thank God for the printing press because now with the printing press, we're able to get the word of God to the common person. And many people were burned at the stake for daring to translate it into English. And the printing press also gets us again, those extra canonical writings, right? And even those writings, those sacred writings from other traditions in English, by the way. So with, with my invitation to read those books, I think I made an invitation I meant to, I would like to add that in our tradition, we believe that there are sealed scriptures, right? That there are sacred texts that we don't have access to. And I think we tend to think of them as buried up somewhere. And I just want to say some of them, at least, may not be buried at all. And you don't even have to learn a foreign language to read them. They've been translated into English and published, again, due to the printing press. And you can buy them at your local bookstore. And you can read these texts. They, they don't have to be sealed to you. They're, any book that you don't open is sealed to you, right? Right. And I believe that you taught me at one point that the best way to hide something is to um, print it, write it in a book and put it in there. And you can hide things really well if you put them in a book so that everybody can have access to them. Can, can I just That's a really good point. Can I just add something that, that was important and you brought it up? That when we're talking about the Songs of Solomon, this is adult reading only. The little Jewish boys were not allowed to read this when they were a little kid. They needed to be of adult or marrying age, which is younger than we call marrying age now. But you, you had to do your bar mitzvah or your bar mitzvah before you could even look at these particular texts. And so if you're a little kid, 
maybe we're not going to be reading or studying these things, but when you start becoming grown up and your mind is changing, then then the Songs of Solomon becomes something that is beautiful and and if men in our culture were able to speak to women the way that she wanted to be spoke of in the Songs of Solomon, wow, we we might just have a lot less divorces and and people would be happier if they were studying such verses. I love that. So why is it in the Bible then? Now, you've given uh, an answer, and I'd like to back up uh, further in, in history because there's rabbinical tradition and there's, you know, before we get these councils, these Christian councils of, uh, of canonization, uh, those activities, we have rabbis arguing back and forth for and against this book. And I love that about the Jewish tradition. You know, this the book that we call the, the library that we call the book, the, the Bible, it, it covers something like a thousand years of writings and there are all kinds of writings, different genres from different times and places, different ideas, different uh, theologies, even competing theologies. You have some, maybe even propaganda from the Deuteronomistic historians. Understandably, you know, this is post-exile. They don't want to go into exile again. There was an episode Ben recorded with, I think it was Tom Bogle. It was either Tom Bogle or Kyle Swingle, where whoever it was came to the the some kind of understanding let's say of the pharisees they've been burned and i don't want to be burned again so they went into exile they figured they didn't cross all their t's and dot all their i's and follow every last commandment you know every jot and tittle and that's why they were sent into exile they have this transactional idea of god that again the job poet contradicts that Ecclesiastes and Proverbs contradict, and the rabbis and the Jews and all those who put this, you know, the the redactors and the compilers and those who put these books together and made these decisions, they knew all this stuff was in here and they left it in here and they argued about it and they did so with uh, respect for each other, uh, much as the Muslim scholars today do. You know, they may disagree about points of Sharia, points of the law, and yet, in the end, they say, and I love this, Tracy, they say in the end, and God knows best. And that's, where, that's the last thing they say. This is my opinion, and God knows best. You and I, Tracy, we're going to actually be able to model this later on as we go into the Song of Solomons and something from the New Testament. We'll actually have some disagreements, and we'll, we'll point out different ways of reading it, and we'll be able to model that with love and respect for each other as good friends of many years. Yes, and and if we are reading just what you were saying, if we're reading it and I'm letting you know up front that this is my reading, this is my opinion, this is my recipe, and it may be useful to you, but it may not be useful to you. And in the end, God does know best. And it was merely my opinion and my reading of Scripture. Yeah. So the third question that we get from from the professor who wrote the article on the reading the Song of Solomon as a Latter-day Saint is, since the Song of Solomon is not originally inspired scripture, what is it? Now, this one I think we've covered at least somewhat. This is poetry. It's love poetry. This was known both to the ancient, you know, compilers of 
the Hebrew Bible and the compilers of the Christian Bibles all the way down to the Protestant Bible where it's still included. And even as Latter-day Saints, it's still included in our canon. And yet we're told it's not inspired scripture and maybe it's, it's even biblical trash. So what did we, what do we do with this love poetry? Why are we including it? If we go all the way back to how it gets included in the Hebrew Bible, it gets allegorized. And, and in, in the Christian tradition, the same thing. So in the, in the Jewish tradition, the allegory is the love between the Holy One of Israel and Israel. And in the Christian tradition, between Christ and the church. I think we'll see as we look at some of the verses in the Doctrine and Covenants that actually quote from the Song of Songs, that in one of them at least, that this love of God for the church is what's being spoken of when the Song of Songs is quoted in the Doctrine and Covenants. So that brings us to our next question. Why, if it's not inspired scripture, why then do we have several quotes from the Song of Songs in the Doctrine and Covenants? Let me share one of the, the quotes in the Doctrine and Covenants from the Song of so- Solomon. I, every time I try to say the Song of Solomon or the Song of Songs, I'm trying to say both at the same time. <laughs> And it does, doesn't really work out. What's it called in the KJV, Tracy? It's called the Song of Solomon. Right. I like the Song of Songs, the one that tells us from, you know, from the Jewish Bible that tells us that this is the epitome. I mean, this really is some of the most beautiful poetry in the, from the ancient world, right? Not just in the Bible, but from the ancient world. Okay, so the first verse that I'll mention is from 109, section 109 of Doctrine and Covenants, verse 73. Remember all thy church, O Lord, with all their families and all their immediate connections, with all their sick and afflicted ones, with all the poor and meek of the earth, that the kingdom which thou hast set up without hands may become a great mountain and fill the whole earth, that thy church may come forth out of the wilderness of darkness and shine forth fair as the moon, clear as the sun, and terrible as an army with banners, and be adorned as a bride for that day when thou shalt unveil the heavens, and cause the mountains to flow down at thy presence, and the valleys to be exalted. So this coming forth out of the wilderness of darkness appears also, you know, in in other verses in the Bible. Really, Joseph Smith quotes here from Daniel, from Song of Songs, from Revelation, from Isaiah, There are all kinds of quotes included in this. And so for me, one of the answers in my mind to why does Joseph Smith quote from the Song of Solomon if he says it's uninspired, it's not inspired scripture, how about that? Then for me, one of the answers is it's the language of the Bible, including the Song of Solomon, is so well known to him before his prophetic career begins that he just quotes from it very much the same way that you might quote from Werner Erhardt from Erhardt Seminar Training, Seminar Training, I think it was called EST. It's best known as EST and later becomes known as Landmark. That's an oversimplification, but we do have something called Landmark. The I've heard bishops in our church speak out against attending Landmark education. I did attend Landmark education. And one of the things I learned, Tracy, I'll just ask you this. Have you, do you ever say when someone says something, and you understand it, do you say, I get that? I have used that phrase from time to time, and I probably didn't know where I got it from that I get that. Right, that's something we all say, and it turns out that that comes from Werner Erhardt. And so 
if we can take the the some of the bishops telling Latter Day Saints not to go to Landmark Seminar, uh, Landmark Education, or Earhart Seminar Training, or Est, or whatever it was called originally, nowadays Landmark, then we could say that maybe we shouldn't be quoting ideas from that, but we do, right? We do, and we don't even realize it. And so this could be the case for Joseph Smith, or there could be more to it if. Uh, if he's receiving an impression that includes these words somehow, although I don't believe that uh, prophetic utterances are dictation from God, rather God speaks to our hearts in a way that we have to then put things into our own words. And I think that that shows us, you know, how somebody like Joseph Smith can have, again, quotes from all over the Bible in his revelations, right? If it is dictated, then that's not known to me. And then it also is an explanation for why these things are quoted. But why is the Song of Solomon quoted? And here it refers to the love again that God has for the church. And I think that that is very important because what we're finding is this is covenant language. Um, When I started learning a couple of things in Hebrew, you may have heard this term. um, Have you ever heard someone say yada yada? They're, yes. What what they're they're saying is I know I know, and so yada is to know. It's to have intimate knowledge of someone or something. It is covenant language, and that is why even Jesus, when he he's talking and he's saying, there's going to be some people that that are going to say, I went to church every Sunday. I went to the temple every Sunday. I had a temple recommend. I. And now I'm throwing some things in that Jesus didn't say, but but he says, I, I healed the sick, I did all these good things, and then Jesus' goodness, then he says to some of them, I don't know you. I don't have a covenant relationship with you. We don't have a we are not intimate, we are not husband and wife. And so I think that that might be one of the reasons why this is kept in the scripture because it's showing us that when we enter into a covenant with the God of Israel, this is a marriage relationship. It is a relationship that only a husband and a wife know. And so I can do all good things and I can do everything, but if I did not um, enter into the covenant relationship with the God of Israel, then at the end of the day, he's going to say, I don't even know who you, I've never slept with you as it were. We don't have that kind of relationship. Who are you? Yeah. And that plays into the allegorization of the song of songs as about God and us, right? And this is something I think that really is a major theme in the whole Bible. This isn't just something that's found in the Song of Solomon, this idea that God wants to marry us, right? That there's this sacred marriage, this hieragami, uh, between heaven and earth. For listeners familiar with the writings of Rumi, who happens to be the most, the best-selling, I don't know if he's the most popular, but he's the best-selling poet in America today, which is really interesting, right? Because he is a 13th century Muslim mystic from Persia. And so his writings are love poetry, and this is typical among Sufis. He's not the only one. And there is, again, this allegorized love between the Sufi and God. And when you read it, if, you don't, if you're not aware of this, you think you're reading just like you could think in the Song of Solomon that you're reading about, well, here Solomon and this, and this uh, dark tan woman that you mention. 
or, or black woman that you mentioned, and Solomon, right? But it could be between us and between God. And when you read Rumi, you get the sense that he's writing, about, well, he's writing, he is writing about his beloved. It clearly says beloved, and yet the beloved is God. And one of the things that I picked up from Llewellyn Von Lee, who's a, a Sufi today, in the, let's say, in the Western Sufi tradition, if we can call it that, and this was on Super Soul Sunday in an interview with Oprah, I realize, of course, if I'm in a relationship uh, with God where he is my lover, allegorically speaking, well, I didn't realize, actually, this is the problem, right? I actually felt like, okay, so if I'm in a relationship with God where allegorically he is my lover, then I wasn't even really thinking about which one of us is archetypally speaking masculine and which is feminine. And Llewellyn Van Lee kind of woke me up because he said, if I'm in that kind of relationship with God, I am, archetypally speaking, in the feminine or passive position, meaning I am waiting for God to show up and God is going to show up whenever he wants to. And I'm going to be waiting for him. Right? And that is it. That is a really important thing to do uh, or to understand is that we are waiting on the bridegroom. But can I just do a little quick side note? In Deuteronomy, uh, we, we've got a covenant that is being set up, up where the bridegroom is telling, this seems to be a young bridegroom. He's saying, you're going to do this. 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 And basically Israel as the bride is going to break that covenant and God is going to divorce Israel. And then later in, in Ezekiel, then when God is making the new covenant, it seems like the, the bridegroom has grown up. And these are just my way of reading it. But now the bridegroom says, you know what? Here's what I'm going to do for the bride. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to do all these wonderful things. And you had a heart of stone and I'm going to give you a heart transplant and I'm going to give you a brand new heart, a heart that's flesh. And so, so we can even see that the covenant relationship within our own text is changing where, where God says, you know what? Uh, me being this authoritarian, it didn't work out so well. And now I'm going to show my bride how awesome of a bridegroom that I am. And, and Jesus kind of exemplifies that too because he sets himself up as the, the bridegroom and the church as the bride. I like that. So verse 109.73 in the Doctrine and Covenants, I did not mention, is quoting from Song 610, right? Song of Solomon 610. There are a couple of other verses in the Doctrine and Covenants that are quoting from Songs uh, 610, right? Song, I, I say songs, meaning Song of Songs. And the first one is from DNC 514. Now, by the way, the section 109 is a dedicatory prayer for the temple. Joseph Smith is quoting from the Song of Songs in a dedicatory prayer for the temple. And now we have DNC 514, which uses the language of the verse in reference to the church even though it reverses adjectives that describe the sun and the moon. And to none else will I grant this power to receive this same testimony among this generation. In this, the beginning of the rising up and coming forth of my church out of the wilderness, clear as the moon and fair as the sun 
and terrible as an army with banners. So the same language that was quoted in section 109. The final text in the Doctrine and Covenants that has language from Song 610 is 105.31. Doctrine and Covenants 105.31. But I first let my army become very great, and let it be sanctified before me that I may become fair as the sun and clear as the moon, and that her banners may be terrible unto all nations. So by now, the listener will recognize the same verbiage from the same chapter in the Song of Songs in all three of these sections of the Doctrine and Covenants. The, the only other reference that I think, uh, th- those are the three references from the Doctrine and Covenants. Another reference I'd like to share is from Joseph Smith's diary. He actually writes in his diary something from the Song of Songs. So if, if readers or listeners, if listeners are interested in reading that article, that again is reading the Song of Solomon as a Latter-day Saint by Dana M. Pike from RSC, BYU's Religious Education, uh, Religious Studies Center. And can I just mention right here that when we're reading the scriptures and we view it as a covenant relationship between a bridegroom and the bride, you are going to be able to find deeper meaning and maybe uh, the scriptures will be open and as as they say, the mysteries of heaven will be revealed to you when you're reading it as a covenant relationship of man and the church or between man and God. I like that. That tastes good. So, Tracy, I think now we can go into a little bit of what we wanted to cover in the Song of Solomon, the Song of Songs, and that is uh, the different words for love that are used by the writer in that poetry. But first, we want to start where most people, most of our listeners have probably, as Christians, right, have probably heard of the idea of different words for love in the Bible, which comes from C.S. Lewis originally, who wrote the book, The Four Loves. And he tells us about four types of love. You can find this uh, under four types of love at cslewis.com. Affection, which is storge, Friendship, which is philia, and listeners are probably familiar with philia, as in Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. Romantic love, which is eros, which I think most listeners are probably familiar with. And finally, charity or agape. Tell us, Tracy, about your reading of chapter 21 of John and what this, what these ideas did for you when you, when you came across them. Maybe not from C.S. Lewis. Tell us about your experience. Can, can I just read those verses in John chapter 21 and it's verse sure. 15, 16, and 17. And then we can maybe break it down. So this is in the King James Version and it says, verse 15. So when they had dined, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, lovest thou me more than these? And he said unto him, yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. And he said unto him, Feed my lambs. Verse 16. And he said unto him again a second time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? And he said unto him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. And he said unto him, Feed my sheep. Verse 17. And he said unto him the third time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? And Peter was grieved because he said unto him a third time, Lovest thou me? And he said unto him 
Lord, thou knowest all things, and thou knowest that I love thee. And Jesus said unto him, Feed my sheep. When I first was looking at this, and one of my one of my good friends, uh, Reverend Kenneth Jackson, down in Texas, uh, he brought this to me probably thirty five or forty years ago, and and he says, "Well, what is the meaning of this?" And what I found, I found, was that that we're going to have Peter and Jesus using two different words as their as love that are going to show up in english as love so this is just my reading of the scripture so what i'm hearing is jesus saying hey simon do you agape me do you love me with this overarching love this love of god this thing that's much bigger and then peter is going to say yay lord thou knowest that i filio you and then Jesus is going to say, hey, Peter, do you agape me? And Peter's going to say, yea, Lord, thou knowest that I filio you. And then he's going to say the third time and Simon's going to she, he's going to get he's going to get angry or grieved or sad or whatever he's going to. He says, Simon bar Jonas. And now Jesus is going to change it a little bit. He's going to say, OK, Peter, do you filio me? And he says, you know that I filio you. And he says, then go ahead and feed my sheep, take care of my lambs. And this is interesting because in the first chapter of the Song of Songs, then we, we've got this this flock um, being referred to and this, this idea of having uh, a shepherd and the shepherd looking over the sheep and taking care of them is going to also be in the, the Song of Songs. Uh, but that is my reading of it. And what it did for me is some 35 years ago, it made me think, hey, maybe I need to learn some more than what I have learned in the past. And I'm going to report back to you that I am, I know a couple of words in Greek and I know a couple of words in Hebrew. And I wish that I had 35 years ago taken the task and learned how to speak and read Greek and Hebrew, and I'd probably be better off. But it did change my reading of Scripture. And for me, it made it where this verse in John chapter 21, 15 through 17, now it made sense. And when I was reading it in the English, it just didn't make sense to me. But when I saw that there were different words in Greek um, for the word that is being used as love, then that changed my study. It changed my study of Scripture. And I was excited about that. And so now I'm not just taking words at their face value. I'm looking at them and going, hey, maybe I need to go look in Bible Hub or go look in something that's readily available and see if the word that I'm reading means exactly what I thought it meant. I love that you point out, Tracy, that this didn't just change the way you read these few verses that you shared with us. It changed the way that you read the scriptures, the way that you study. And you mentioned Bible Hub. I'd like to take the listener through. So first of all, as a teacher of languages, as someone who's learned uh, you know, studied and taught languages for many years. 
I have to say, Tracy, it's not too late. And, and this, is, this applies to anyone listening. I have taught new languages to septuagenarians. Maybe even, were they octogenarians? They may have been octogenarians. That would be 80 or above. Mm-hmm. They may have been octogenarians. There were these two gentlemen I taught. Uh, they had started an oil and gas field services company in Houston, of which there are many. And they had international business. They had grown this business quite a lot, actually. And they had still this entrepreneurial spirit burning in their bosoms. So what they wanted to do is to keep developing new business. So they put other people on top of themselves. You can be CEO. I just want to keep developing new business like the thing I've been doing all along. And so they wanted to learn Spanish and do business with um, some people in Latin America. And they were able to do that as octogenarians. As I recall, they were they were actually octogenarians. And they were able to do that, and so can you. And the other thing is, you don't actually have to learn Hebrew, as it were, uh, Biblical Hebrew or Biblical Greek, you know, Koine Greek, to be able to do what Tracy is doing, as he himself has admitted, and as I myself have admitted, I don't actually, I have studied some Biblical Hebrew, and I have studied Ancient Greek, not Koine Greek, not the Biblical Greek, and yet Tracy and I can and, and, and so can you do words, what I call word studies. I think these are called word studies. And so let me, let's talk the listener through that, Tracy. How does one go about? So first you have curiosity about a word you're reading in your translation. One thing you can do is look at other translations. But listen, if you find a difference, all that really does for you is more than even before. You want to know what the original says. Now, you can't read again Greek, but you can look into the particular word. If you could find that word in an interlinear translation online free, and you could click on that word and you could actually go into the definition and it can give you the whole lexical range. Remember, biblical Hebrew, we mentioned last episode, actually has a very small uh, vocabulary. There are not that many words, so many of them have a wide lexical range or a wide sphere of meaning, as Ben puts it, and you can actually see what are all the possible translations of that word so that you can start to get a better sense of, remember, the translator has to choose one. We also mentioned last episode that while originals of great literature don't age, translations do, and that is because, likely, this was Ben's answer, and I think it's a good answer. As a, as a professional translator, I endorse it. Um, you have to choose a word from among the many possible words that you could choose to translate that. And that choice comes out of your own context, just like Joseph Smith's context gave him the words for his revelations, right? For his inspired writings. So, we can go into, though, beyond translations and beyond going into these word studies, we can also find out every single verse that will give us that word, that, that includes that word. And we can see how sometimes the same word is translated differently in different contexts, and that's valid based on context. Context gives meaning. And by the way, that's one of the things that makes books like the Book of Job difficult is because it has so many of what scholars call hapax legomena, which is just Greek for this word only shows up once in the canon. And so context, if context gives meaning, context is lacking for that word because it only shows up in one particular context and it becomes then difficult for us to determine accurately the meaning of the word. How would you go about, if you, would, if you were talking the listener through doing one of these word studies, what's the step-by-step -step process by which you do this, Tracy? 
one of the things that I want to let the listeners, I'm going to give you a nugget of gold. This is pure gold right here when you're doing the word study and the word search. And I learned this from my rabbi, Rabbi Daniel Lappin, who says that he's uh, America's rabbi and everyone needs a rabbi, whether you're Jewish or not. But Rabbi Lappin taught me that when you find a word, if you'll go into the Tanakh, if you go back into the, the Torah and find where that word is first introduced in Scripture, then it will give you the definition of it. So when I'm looking at a word, then what I do is I will go back and find where it's first introduced in the Old Testament. And oftentimes that will give me clarification on the meaning of what that word is because of the context that it's first delivered in Scripture. Let me say a couple of things to that, Tracy. You know, the first thing that occurred to me is I'm not sure that works because, again, we have writings from over a period of over a thousand years that are cobbled together. Um, the redactor certainly tried to give them to us in some kind of order that makes it look like it's one cohesive narrative. And yet it's interesting to note that the order is changed in the Christian Bible for the same reason, actually. And there, there are things like the book of Ruth and Esther. Esther in particular being secular, um, not mentioning God. Maybe we could say not inspired scripture. Can I say that? I, I'm not really saying that with any authority, but I could say that. And, and yet I don't know that that's true any more than, than the Song of Solomon's, as Joseph Smith puts it, is an inspired scripture, although I understand why he might say that. And I've tried to steel man that argument, as you suggested we do in, in our pre-show discussion, Tracy. But but I, I certainly do see the value in, in looking at other places in the scriptures where the same word is used. And it's interesting to note that where the word love first shows up in the in the Hebrew Bible is when God tells Abraham to take the son who whom he loves and sacrifice him, right? There is that. The second thing is I love that you said that, that your rabbi says everyone should have a rabbi in the Islamic tradition we would call the equivalent of a rabbi, we might call a sheikh. A sheikh is just a, a, a someone who is well uh, versed in, you know, who studied the, the, the Quran and the, the sunnah of the prophet, the practice of the prophet. And so there's a saying in Islamic tradition that says, if you don't have a sheikh, then Satan is your sheikh. So, so there is that. I don't want to scare anybody in, uh, away from doing these, you know, word studies by themselves. But there is, of course, the opportunity to reach out to someone who knows more, to have a teacher like your rabbi, to have a teacher like my sheikh, to do what I did right before we recorded and call up Trevin Hatch at BYU, uh, who happens to be a, a biblical scholar, whereas I'm not and neither are you and we've, we've never claimed to be, and to ask some questions about these things. And he sent me some resources and I didn't get to look at them. But I just want to point out to the listener that this is a lifelong effort. Tracy mentions he's been doing this for over three decades. I myself have spent a lot of time over the years, especially since I became a student of philosophy to really go into asking questions about what I'm reading, to read more critically. And I found it richly rewarding, just as you have, Tracy. Can I just mention on this is one of the things that's very powerful is oftentimes, and I'm going to use an analogy where um, parents will have a child that has some uh, cancer or some kind of disease. And at the end of the day, 
they've got hundreds of doctors that are the scholars or the experts in the, the field, and yet many times the parent knows more than all of the doctors because they have studied this specific thing and have read everything that's been written on it. And so you and I, as we're studying, we may not have a degree behind our name, but we can literally be the foremost expert on a, a small portion of scripture. And so I'm just saying to the listener is don't cut yourself out because you're like going, well, I haven't done this because your input may add light and knowledge to the conversation because you have been reading and studying everything that can be found about a particular subject matter. We have uh, very much, you know, the, the the true sense of amateur, right? One who, who is in love with the subject. We have at least, I can think of at least two examples off the top of my head of great scholars who were amateurs. One was Dorothy Sayers, who was a Dante scholar. Another uh, and these are I'm giving these in chronological order. Well, Dante in chronological order, not Dorothy Sayers. Then you have Edward Gibbon, the author of the Decline and the Fall of uh, the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. And so these are two shining examples. So yes, indeed, you could be the one. Now I, I'll give an example here, a possibility that I don't know of because this is something that occurred to us late in our discussions in our pre-show discussions. We found a reference to shepherding sheep in the first chapter of Song of Songs, which you've mentioned, Tracy, which may or may not have anything to do with what we read in John. If it does, then it's significant because then Jesus is quoting from the Song of Songs, just like Joseph Smith did. And then we can ask ourselves again, if this is not inspired scripture, then why are we quoting from it, right? Why is Joseph Smith quoting from it? Why is Jesus maybe quoting from it? This is something to look into. So we won't settle these matters, I think, but before we move on to the Song of uh, Solomon, chapter one, at least, uh, as we um, go through this, I want to give, I want to problematize what C.S. Lewis uh, probably first, I don't know where your teacher got it, but uh, he wrote about it. There's a book length treatment again, if listeners are interested in, in learning more about Tracy's reading, you're reading Tracy, right? They can read The Four Loves by C.S. Lewis. I believe I read it years ago. I'll probably reread it now because of this conversation. So, and we know that C.S. Lewis, by the way, is, is the most quoted non-Latter-day Saint in Latter-day Saint general conferences by general authorities of the church, right? That's That's been uh, true for a long time. So he's often been referred to as the uh, the, the, the non-apostle apostle or the, the dry Mormon uh, oh, that's as cute. it were. Yeah. Yeah. So let me just sort of problematize as, as I read it, this reading, I, I actually got the same result that you did, Tracy, when I read it that way, or when I heard about it, I should say when I heard about it. But as I look at the Greek, and even, well, especially looking at the Greek, but even where the English can, I think the reader can, the listener can follow what I'm saying. So here's what, here's how I read it. First, Jesus says, Agapas, do you agape me? And then uh, Peter says, well, you know, I affiliate you, right? I have philia for you. I affiliate you. Right? And so then Jesus says again, do you agape me? And then he says, I affiliate you, right? 
And then the third time he says, and now for the third time he says, do you phileo me? And it's like, wait a minute, why did Jesus change verbs? You've given an explanation and that's possible, right? That's one possible reading. What I see, what I, what I first saw, put it this way, what I first saw was, oh, the writer's just changing up the words to not use the same word over again. Because if Jesus says for the third time, do you phileo me? But he actually first said, do you agape me twice? Then there's some kind of, that's not what actually happened, right? The third saying, the one that says he said it for a third time, it's not actually true unless we take it as he just asked the question, do you love me? And the, the which verb is used doesn't matter. So if I think of it that way and I start to look at other words around it, it turns out that when Peter says, I, you know that I love you, even the verb to know changes. Uh, from verse to verse. And then even the word for sheep changes and even the word for shepherd, as in shepherd my sheep changes. And so then I start to ask myself, why am I making such a big deal out of this one word changing when all kinds of word changes, all kinds of word change. But then it turns out that, you know, this idea of using synonyms loosely, right, in the way that, that I think that I saw, like first saw might be happening is not really something that's done by ancient writers. It turns out that Tracy, in your favor, in favor of your reading, they're very careful about the words that they use, right? And so they, there may be something going on there. And it may be what C.S. Lewis and, and your rabbi taught you is going on, or it may be something else. But the thing that I would like the listener to take away is that there's something more here than meets the eye and that this is worth digging into, I can't wait to read the, the sources that uh, Trevin Hatch sent me that I couldn't read before the podcast. And maybe by the time I meet with those of you who care to join me for Latter-day Peace Studies Come Follow Me study group Sunday morning uh, when we cover this, although this is a bonus episode, we'll have to squeeze it in somewhere. We'll have to have a bonus session of Come Follow Me study group. Then maybe I'll know uh, something more about this. But I continue to learn. I continue to read about the book of Job. I read seven books before I podcasted on the book of Job. And I haven't been able to let Job go. I continue reading whatever I have to talk about next. You know, Ben and I are on the mic once a week, spending about 20 hours a week preparing for the one hour we spend on the mic, maybe two at most, an hour and a half usually. And yet I'm still reading about Job, Tracy. You know what? This is powerful, and you made you made a point that I think should be brought out in a strong as we can bring it out. If you're reading of the scripture, if you're finding of new information brings clarity to you, then now we're getting somewhere. Now we're we're actually studying. We're not just reading the text. We're we're trying to to dive deeper into it and ask lots of questions. And the more I ask questions, the more understanding and wisdom and knowledge that I'm going to have entering into my brain. And so me asking a question, it was a clarifying for me. And does it clarify or does it confuse you? And that may be one of the things as I'm studying that I want to look at is I want to ask that question. Is this a clarifying um, information? But it could even be confusing at first because I'm not quite understanding. And, and that's okay too, because so long as I continue to study and you're just saying, well, you read seven books of, about Job before you even felt comfortable and now you're reading more books. And, and if we were to have a conversation on Job a year from now, then you, your opinion on it may be different. 
And so what I have tried to do is I've tried to take the therefore clause out of my study. So, so, and I'm one of those individuals that loves to throw in the therefore clause. I would, if I, if I could do it, I want to say, well, he said this, 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 therefore it means. And so God told me in my personal revelation, drop the therefore clause. Just look at the information, study, and next week you may have a different opinion about what it means. I love that, Tracy. Hopefully we serve as a model of what it looks like to, you know, to the listener to to be someone who's not a biblical scholar, but who is a scholar of the Bible, a, a student, right? And, and student comes from the Latin studeo studere, which means to be zealous. I think if you're a good student, you're zealous. You show up ready to learn. You dig in. You can't get enough. You read seven books about Job and then read seven more. Right. And then, yeah, where does where does this all end up? Deeper and deeper understanding. Now, let's go into the Song of Solomon, the purported topic of this podcast uh, in the last uh, 15 minutes that we have here together. Tracy, I'd like to go into the first chapter and, and let's talk about let's talk about the meaning of some of the words that are that are used in the Hebrew Bible for love. By the way, it turns out there are more than four words for 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 love in Greek. And there are more than three in Hebrew, but we're going to focus in on three words that we think. And by the way, Hebrew, I think, sorry, Arabic has, I can't remember if it's 11 or 14, but there, there, there are over 10 words for love. And they kind of take you through the relationship step by step from, from that first sight into this covenant relationship, right? And so the first word that we want to talk about before we actually go into and read from the Song of Songs and see where these words show up is raya. What does raya mean, Tracy? That, that, is, a, that is kind of a friendship, a soulmate, um, where, where the individual, you got to get to know each other. Um, and now I'm using the word know, and as I was saying before, yada is to know, but but it's it's basically just to to know, uh, become friendly with somebody, uh, have a have a conversation with them, be able to meet with them. I've got friends that that I have known for now forty plus years, uh, and I can. There are a few people in this world that I can go and. We may not have spoken for 10 years, literally. And when we see each other, it's like we just pick up the conversation. Or if I was broke down on the side of the road and called certain people, they would come and pick me up, even if they had to drive two or three hours. That is the rea. That is the, the, um, the friendship. And it's interesting with the, with the rea is, there, there are a masculine version and a feminine version. The Reach is the name of a boy, which is, means the Lord has remembered me. Um, and Reach is the, the name of a girl, and that is friendship or a friend. And so, so that is a love that, that, that is important. This is the kind of love that we're going to find with David and Jonathan. That they that they have that that deep friendship, love. But 
now, just as I said it, then I'm going, well, I might need to go look that up because they, they may have had the love that is going to be our next love. And you can, and I don't know that we did actually go through step by step how to do that. I don't think we did. Let's do that, Tracy. So if I'm interested in seeing, let's say I'm looking at the first chapter of Song of Songs, and I want to see where this word Raya shows up, and we have two more to talk about, Ahava and Dod. But let's say I want to know what, what it actually says in the Hebrew. And again, I don't know Hebrew. I'm just going to look at a transliteration that lets me read in, that is in, in Roman letters, meaning in our alphabet, R-A-Y-A-H. I can read that, right? Even though I can't read the Hebrew text. And I can read Dod, D-O-D, and I can read Ahava, A-V-A. Yes. No, sorry. A-H-A-V-A-H. I can read that. So my first step is... And Bet. It's actually Bet, which is the second letter, but which sounds as a B and a V, but that doesn't really matter in what we're trying to accomplish. So, So my first step is to Google... Song of Songs, chapter one, with the word interlinear in my search. And what that interlinear is going to do, and probably your first result result from that Google search will be Bible Hub. Click on it. You'll see the Hebrew, which by the way, reads right to left. So the English will be interlinearly, meaning in between the Hebrew lines, you'll find the English interlinearly written. And you'll want to read that from right to left. You'll read the first English word from the right and then the next to the right, you know, reading from right to left, read the next English word, and you'll get a a rough translation. It'll be fairly rough of the Hebrew into English. But each one of those Hebrew words, in addition to showing up in the Hebrew script, again, appears in the Roman alphabet, our alphabet, and with a Strong's number, which is a, a concordance, There's also the idea of looking at a lexicon, but there's a concordance here called Strong's. You can now click, and again, you can find this last step I mentioned. Once you click through, you will see a definition of that word. You will see every verse in the Bible that includes that word and how it is translated in various translations, including the King James Version and others. So that's how that works. The second word, Ahava, what is that? The Ahava, this is this is the thing that that as you get older, at the, that couple, that eighty year old couple that's been together for fifty years, and they might not even ha- say hardly a word to each other, but they have this commitment. It is this lasting, long, overarching, and for me, it is often translated from the Greek as the agape. And so I I like to, anytime I can do a compare and contrast, then I like to see it because it gives, or within within Mormon or Latter-day Saint or the member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saint iconology, then what we might say that this Ahava is forever love. It is this love that lasts beyond lifetime. It, it lasts in this life and in the eternities to come. Um, this is this is the big the big one, kind of like in my mind, agape is in the Greek. Okay, so we can say that raya is like philia in Greek, and so the Hebrew raya is like philia in the Greek, and ahava is like agape in the Greek, perhaps. Yes, That's, we could read it that way. And then we have dod, and, and dod 
Uh, remember, we are we are adults here, and we're talking. So dulled is going to be the eros. It's going to be the erotic. It is the it is the passion, the sexual, the thing that um that makes a man work hard all of his life to take care of his family and because he knows that there's a woman at the house that loves him and cares for him and takes care of all of his needs, his physical, his spiritual, his emotional needs. But this dode is going to be passion, animal magnetism, as it were. Okay, so this one we can equate with the Greek eros. Right? Yes. This is the erotic love. So you brought up something earlier. I could have you know, a friendship and not have this ahava, this long-term commitment, right? Even though you spoke of your friends as having that kind of commitment. So you may have both with some of those friends, right? They may have, you may have this raya, you may have the ahava. You can also have dod without the other two in an extramarital affair, right? In some kind of, you know, adulterous or or any kind of extramarital affair, you could have dod, but without the long-term commitment and without the friendship, so it's really when you get all three of them together that you have something really special, right? Yes, and they they it become it becomes so powerful. But in our culture, our current culture, current society, it seems that people think that they can jump right to the dode and then have something that's going to be meaningful, and yet um, it's probably not going to because you didn't start with the friendship. And then build a relationship. So if we twist this around or do it in the wrong order, and I don't even like to use that language necessarily, but there is an order to things. And when we read scripture, then oftentimes we see the order of the covenant that God is making with his people. And so, so Dode seems to me that it is, it is one of those things that doesn't work as a lasting, it is temporary if you don't have the other elements of the Rea or the Ahava with it. So let's look at the Song of Solomon here in the last, in the you know the first chapter of it. We're not going to be able to cover all of it. I love the conversation that we've been able to have and that we've shared that we're sharing through this podcast. You know, it doesn't cover the Song of Songs itself, and yet it does. And I invite the listener to read this beautiful poetry. And, be, and and do you have anything you want to add before we actually, you know, to the to wrap up that conversation before we actually go into Song of Songs chapter one? Yes, I do. And one of the things that I found is that so so the word give is a root to the ahava. So it's giving. Yes. And so what that did was that opened up and, and I'm going to jump back to the to the New Testament. Uh, a, a verse that many people are going to be familiar with, but it's in Luke chapter 6, verse 38. And here's what it says in the King James. Give, remembering that this is a root word of ahava, give and it shall be given unto you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, shall be put into your lap. For the same measure with which you measure, it shall be measured back to you again. I love this one. This is a, a great family home evening 
um, study scripture. If you ever have little kids that you want to show them, because you can, you can take one cup of flour and then you can shake it to get, shake it down and then pound it together and then start making it overflow. And one cup of flour then becomes two cups of flour in the same container. And when I saw that, that this was a root to give is a root of love, then it made so much sense and my understanding has increased of what love means. So I may be broke as a joke. I may not have very much money, but there's always somebody who is less than me, who has less than me. So I can always give. I can always show love. I can always help my neighbor. And, and so I'm thankful that we're having this study because because now, as I reread and reading it over and over again, I was able to go, oh my goodness, so I'm always supposed to give, no matter what situation that I'm in, and that never changes. And so, if we were talking about tithing, then then tithing is in a state of abundance. Okay, I'm not even going to mention tithing because that would be too, too strong. But whether I may tithe, but I'm always have to give. I'm going to give no matter what situation that I'm in. And, and that opened this to me in such a powerful way. And now I think we can go into the songs of songs, the song of Solomon. You know, it's funny, Tracy, I thought you were going to go to John three sixteen. I thought you were going to tell me that God so loved the world that he, he gave from agape you know, somehow his, his only son. It turns out that the verse does say that he agape the world and he gave his son, but the, the verb is a different verb for give. But the agape does show up there in the love that God has for the world that causes him then to give his son. All right, so let's go to songs, uh, Song of Songs, chapter 1. And let's look at what it says, including those words that we talked about. So I'll go ahead and read. So what I did is I pulled up, again, an interlinear translation with the Hebrew. And by the way, there's also the Septuagint. So in another tab, I was able to Google and find the Septuagint so I can look at the Greek words that show up in this text. And here's what I get in the Hebrew. Again, reading from just reading the English, but from that place from Bible Hub where I can see the Hebrew, I can click on the words, I can read them in in my own alphabet if I don't read Hebrew, and I can click on the Strong's number and get the definition of the word. But most importantly to me right now, I can see a transliteration, meaning someone has put the Hebrew word into my alphabet, and I can read you the actual words, whether it's Raya, Ahava, or Dod. Here we go. The song of songs that is of Solomon. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for his Dod is better than wine. So that's Dod. That's erotic love, right? Because of the fragrance of your good ointments, Sorry, because of the fragrance of your ointments, good ointment poured forth, your name is upon, it becomes a a little bit of a mess to read this like this, but the point is, speaking, this is the bride speaking to Solomon, thus, she says, the virgins love you, ahebbokah, they ahavayu, okay, because of your fragrance. Then the friends speak and they say, draw me away after you, we will run. The king has brought me into his chambers. We will be glad and rejoice in you. We will remember your dode, your erratic love, more than wine. Again, rightly do they love you, a hebuka. Now, again, it looks like you could just be 
you know, the writer could just be using synonyms to not use the same word over and over again. The ancient writers didn't necessarily do that, so that may not be a good explanation. It may be rather that they're very, very careful about their words and that there's something to this. I don't know what there is to this, but there may be something to it, and I can spend as much time as I want to going into this, right? And I can look at resources. I can look at commentary. I can do these word studies. I can think about it myself. I can receive personal revelation. You know, something you said about when it comes to personal revelation, Tracy, something you said earlier really struck me because in reading Dante, where Travis Patton, who's been a guest on on our sister podcast, Latter-day Contemplation, when he and I have taught Dante together, my wife was in one of those classes. It was the first class. We, we actually did it for her. She had read Dante too quickly and didn't understand or like it. And, and why she didn't like it is probably because she didn't understand it. We went through it slowly. We read one canto. It takes about 10 minutes to read it out loud and then talked about it for 50 minutes. And we did this all the way through the Inferno. And the first thing Travis and I would do when we read the canto is to ask those reading along with us, those people we were teaching, what they got out of it. And my wife has just incredible insights when it comes to whether it's reading Dante or watching Finding Nemo. And she got all kinds of things out of it that I didn't see and that maybe even Dante didn't intend, but they are valid for her. And they may even, I may be able to borrow them and they'd be valid for me, whether Dante intended them or not. And when it comes to being one of the greatest scholars, as you hinted at earlier, or at least a scholar in your own right, it turns out that the greatest scholars sometimes don't know what Dante meant. There are lines in those in those poems, you know, that we call the Commedia, the Divine Comedy, that we don't really know what Dante meant. And so any guess is as good as any, you know, any opinion is as good as any other. My wife's opinion is as good as the greatest Dante scholar. And so that can be you too, right? Yes, and maybe Dante didn't want us to know and wanted you to think and if yes. the writer's wanting me to think, and I actually am thinking at that point, then mission accomplished. Dante, I'm doing exactly what Dante wanted me to do. And that's typical of poets, Tracy. You know, many poets will not explain to you the meaning of what they wrote if you ask them. If you're talking to a living poet who wrote something, she may not be willing to explain to you. She wants you to think for yourself. The meaning is for you to figure out for yourself. And by the way, she may not even know the meaning because the reality is, as many poets have expressed, the poems come to them from they don't know where. There's one poetess who wrote that when she felt a poem coming and she was out of her house, she would run into her house and grab the nearest pencil and paper and write it down. And if she didn't make it to that pencil and paper in time, that poem would just blow right through looking for the next poet ready to write it down. And my, my mother, God rest her soul, she passed away last year, but she was a poetess and she would keep a pen and a paper or her little poetry notebook handy because oftentimes what she would be writing, the inspiration of God would come at, at two or three o'clock in the morning. It would come in the middle of the night. And she knew that if she didn't write it down in that very second, it was gone forever. And so so the, the poetess is not going to tell you what they uh what they intended because 
They don't want you to, uh, they want you to read it and think about it. And so if, if I'm asking a question to someone who is writing poetry, then they may tell me, and I say, well, does it mean this? Their answer more than likely is going to be yes. That's what it means if that's what you read. So another thing I like about, I didn't finish reading the first chapter, and I don't know that we'll go all the way through it. I didn't see any Raya. We did see Dod and Ahava. And it, I, I want to leave it to the listener to follow the example that we've given, to go into this if they're curious enough. By the way, you are curious enough. I mean, so, as Aristotle put it, to to um, to be curious is, is really to be human, right? So, all, all humans by nature desire to know. If you're human, you desire to know. So the Raya is going to show up in verse 9, and it's also going to show up in verse 15. And so so it is there, and while we don't necessarily need to read every every one of the verses, for me, it was interesting that there is the, the Raya, the Ahava, and the Dode are showing up in these one chapter and i'm guessing i'm guessing and this is my guess my reading is that whoever the author of this is wants me to know that there's something happening here and there there's a great video um that i watched where where the individual he showed that when you have Raya, it's like one flame. When you have Ahava, it's like another flame. When you have Dode, it's like another flame. And when you take those three flames and you put them together, then you have the eternal flame. You have something that is can last beyond this world and go into the worlds to come. And something that's beyond just the Dode without the Ahava and the Raya, which you could find extramaritally, something beyond the raya that doesn't have the long-term commitment of the ahava and so on and so forth right so i i would love i'm glad you mentioned that i would love to bring up the the author of that video which is rob bell or who is rob bell and that's his numa video called is it called fire i think if you go on youtube and you look for numa that's n o o m a so november oscar oscar mike alpha and then fire, you'll find that video, and it is good stuff. It's called The Flame. The Flame. The Flame, okay. The Flame. Yeah, that's it. Rob Bell is someone we refer to often on the podcast. So all three loves are here in the first chapter of the Song of Psalms. Song of Songs, you can find them yourself. Another thing that I love about the Bible Hub interlinear you know, rendition of this that I'm reading is that it tells me, First, the bride confesses her love, and then, and that's the first three verses. When I get to verse four, it tells me the friends are speaking. And then when I get to verse five, it tells me the bride is speaking again. I don't know that that shows up in King James. I know in my altar translation that there are, there's an extra return when the speaker changes, and I have to figure out for myself who's speaking. So this is helpful, although again, it could be wrong. And so you, you have to think for yourself, who's speaking here? How does this make sense? This is one of the difficulties in reading a book like Job, right? It really helps if you know that there are three friends that each have take a turn giving a speech. 
and then Job responds to each of them in turn. And of course, you have to keep in mind that the third speaker doesn't have, the third friend doesn't have a third speech. And then there's Elihu who comes out of nowhere. So th these, knowing these things can be helpful in reading and understanding the, the chapter. I hope that, that we have been an example to the listener of how to do this. We're not biblical scholars, and yet we are uh, students of the Bible and and very much eager, very much zealous. You, uh, you know, I invited you on because, uh, like me, you're zealous when it comes to studying the Bible. You're eager. You want to learn. You're open, and you know that there are many ways and there are many resources that we can take advantage of when it comes to approaching the Bible and when it comes to understanding it. What I found, and I. I just want to give you a breakdown showing the reason why I may want to look at these different loves in the Song of Solomon. And I'm just going to give you a breakdown by chapter. In chapter 1, the word lovely is used once. The word love is used six times. Beloved is used six times. Chapter 2, love is used twice. Beloved is used four times. Chapter 3, love is used three times. Loveth is used four times. Chapter four, love four times, beloved one time. Chapter five, love two times, lovely one time, beloved 13 times. Chapter six, and I'm almost there, love is used one time, beloved is used five times. Chapter seven, love is used two times, beloved is used four times. And then in chapter eight, love is used four times, beloved is used two times. The reason why I wanted to bring that up is because if these words are used so much that if I can see what they mean in the Hebrew and I, I look at the breakdown, then my understanding just may increase on this text in which we're reading. And in summary, just knowing that all of the scriptural text is going to refer us back to the covenant, the covenant relationship between God, the God of Israel and Israel, or between the bride and the bridegroom. Yeah, it's not surprising that in, in love poetry that the word love shows up so many times, love and beloved. The question uh, hopefully on the listener's mind at this point is, well, which words for love were used? And and that's something the listener can go into herself and, and experience in the way that we've described. Thank you so much for being with me today uh, on this podcast uh, to talk about these things together, Tracy. You and I, you know, we've been talking about the Bible and, and our studies and, and the things that we find uh, for a long time. It's been a pleasure to have you on the show and to be able to share that that kind of conversation that you and I have with the listener. Thank you. Well, and can I just sign off with, this is your pastor of prosperity, Colonel Tracy Roberts, leaving you with a blessing of prosperity and abundance. God bless you as you bless others. And remember to live your life in purpose and on purpose always. And I love you with that Raya and the Ahava and the Agape that is the powerful thing. And so thank you for allowing me to come on this podcast and share a couple of thoughts. And hopefully it has been a blessing to all of the listeners and they walk away from here better than they came in. Amen. For Latter-day Peace Studies, I am Christopher Hurtado. See you next week.